on the 31st of this month, if you are at home in the evening, you will have troops of little children coming to your door dressed as ghouls, goblins, ghosts, and witches, and they will be saying, trick or treat. I have undergone this process as an adult for many, many years, but before that as a child, I not only participated in it, but I had to sneak out of my house in Eugene, Oregon, because my parents utterly rejected the concept of the observation of Halloween. I deliriously embraced the concept of Halloween because what is more intriguing and exciting in the fall of the year to a little child than seeing all the beautiful decorations of corn stalks and husks and pumpkins and squashes and nuts and all of the produce and the harvest of a beautiful, bounteous fall, the colorful fall leaves. But now, if you were to portray in your mind all the decorations that you're familiar with of that season of the year, you could do several things. You could either go down to Target store, or you could go down to any other large department store in the mall, and you could walk through. And yesterday, I had occasion to stop in at Target for a couple of items that I needed to buy for our home. And there were already dozens and dozens of different kinds of Halloween decorations, plastic jack-o'-lanterns, etc. So a little silent audience participation. If you were going to have a Halloween party and you were going to decorate this building, there were some mandatory things you might want to think about. For instance, what color crepe paper would you use? Orange for the full moon and black because of night. That's not what that means up there, by the way referring to a shield back of my head. Now, if you wanted to go out in the hinterland here of farm areas around us and just ask somebody if you could gather up some things for decoration, you might want to get pine cones, you might want to get corn stalks, maybe even decorate it with an old uh, jack-o'-lantern or two, maybe a couple, three big old pumpkins, and you could carve a face in them and cut the top of them out and put a little candle in them and light it so it would show the light coming through the eyes and the mouth. What else would you want? Well, a black cat or two, cut out of black paper, right? A witch riding on a broomstick. That's always a part of the Halloween decorations. For little children, that is very, very exciting. I didn't know exactly what it was, but when I made my first jack-o'-lantern, I was excited. My hands were trembling. I couldn't get a very big pumpkin. We couldn't afford them. I had a little bitty one. But I cleaned the seeds out, cut the top out, scraped a little bit, and carved out my little weird-looking eyes, like three little, you know, a couple little pyramids and some little weird mouth with teeth in it. Uh, put me a candle and dripped some wax, set it in there, and then set fire to the candle and put it out in the garage. I couldn't bring it in the house, and my parents wouldn't let me. So I had my play-acting Halloween out in the garage. And then I crept out with my soap in my hip pocket and promptly soaped all of the neighbor's windows. All of you have childhood recollections of Halloween, don't you? We all do. Everybody in this audience, I assume, at one time or another, or most of you, went trick-or-treating. You know, the money that the United States of America is going to spend on candy, and nuts, and jelly beans, and plastic jack-o'-lanterns, and costumes, and booze, and parties, and food in these next few weeks would be sufficient to crank up ten new universities with full staffs, no doubt, with gleaming new buildings. It is a billion-dollar business and industry in the United States. How do parents explain Halloween? 
Think back in your mind, try to recollect when you were a child, how did your parents explain it to you? Mine just told me it was bad, and I remember my dad preaching about it out of the pulpit, but I don't remember a whole lot about all of the other aspects. I never remember anybody teaching me the origin of the jack-o'-lantern, the origin of the word jack, why a particular kind of a crow is a jackdaw, why a rapacious slashing fish like a northern pike or certain saltwater fish or any fish that you really don't understand that is wild and rapacious is always a jackfish. Why a knife that opens and closes is a jackknife. Well, that comes from another origin of the jack that we use to raise or lower a car. If you play a game called, not whist, but I believe it was something other called pitch, there is a jick together with the jack. In the deck of cards, there is the jack and there is the joker, and they both have the same origin. The joker in a king's court was a fool. He wore the crazy hat with the tassels, and he would do ludicrous things with his body, and he was a poet or a bard. He would sing or make stupid little statements or tell silly stories, or maybe he was a tumbler, and he was a contortionist, and he was there just to cause the king or the queen to laugh, to keep them in a good humor. The idea of the jack in the lantern is pagan, of course. It has to do with something which is there to frighten away evil spirits. The idea behind Halloween is primarily Druidic, that is, Irish pagan in origin, but it's also Catholic, borrowed by the Protestants in origin. If you look it up, you will find that even the spelling has changed in the last several decades. When I was a boy, the spelling was H-A-L-L-O-W apostrophe E-E-N, which meant, or I believe E apostrophe E-N more correctly, which meant hallowed evening, because it is the evening of October 31st, which is celebrating November 1st, which anciently was in celebration of the god Pomona, which is the god of harvest, of the fall, of paganism, but also adapted by the Catholic Church to be All Saints' Day, when because the calendar became loaded with more than, more than 365 names of Catholic saints who had been elevated by various popes to sainthood, then all of the hallows or all of the saints are recognized and lumped together on November 1st. How many of you heard that and were taught that in the first grade, second grade, third grade? You don't remember, do you? It's sort of omitted from society. Now, isn't that strange? Here is a multi-billion dollar industry. If you doubt me, go to the mall, go to any department store, and walk down and look at all the decorations you're going to see because they're already there. The stores, the managers have said, how much inventory do I need this year? How many plastic jack-o'-lanterns? How many costumes? How many masks? How many of the accoutrements of the little things that you hang up that let, you know, look like a skeleton, etc., or a ghoul or a goblin do I need to sell to all of these mothers and little children who are going to be coming in here? How many witches? How many jack-o'-lanterns? How many apples and nuts and pumpkins and squashes and colorful plastic fall leaves do I need? And so the stores are laden with multi-billions of dollars worth of decorations for Halloween. Now, most of us in God's church are bored by it. Ho-hum, Halloween, so what? We drift right on through the season. We don't even think about it. But to millions of people out there, it is a very expectant 
exciting, wonderful time of the year. It smacks of the fall nostalgia, the changing color of leaves, of church parties, of parties in various people's homes. Now, again, if you doubt my word, and this year, God willing, if I go up to Colorado, we will be staying in a motel up in Craig, Colorado, the Holiday Inn. And because nearly always the deer season opens on the 1st, and this year it will be the 2nd of November, and because we are Sabbath keepers, we always miss opening day. We sit in camp, or we take a little walk, or we just enjoy the day on the Sabbath, and we hunt on the second day. By the second day, 50% of all the animals that are going to be shot have already been killed. It's never been a handicap to us, but we rejoice in God's Sabbath day in the wilderness, and then we go out and hunt on the first work day of the week. But because we nearly always stay in that motel, and it ends up being the night of, of October 31st, we are treated to a wild bash called a Halloween party. Only about 10 years ago, Halloween was for children. Today, it is for adults. There are going to be hundreds of thousands of parties all around the United States, and there are going to be millions of people so staggering drunk that they will have a gigantic hangover the next day and probably an awful lot of death and mayhem on the highways as a result of Halloween parties this coming October 31st. So it is not just a light thing or a small thing, but something that is taken very seriously, a very big commercial event, something that people look forward to, something they think is really wonderful. I've told this story before, but for those of you that will hear this tape, I want you to hear this. And somebody once wrote me a letter, by the way, as a disclaimer before I tell you my story, and said, now look, you've said that you got a box of apples and you gave it to these children who came and said trick-or-treat. How dare you participate in this celebration? Well, I'm not participating in a robbery if I raise up my hands and say, sure, don't kill me, here's my wallet. That is not taking part in the robbery. I mean, I am part of the robbery because I'm the person being robbed. But I'm not a willing participant. So if, God, if I've got to pay blackmail to avoid my house being defaced, I pay blackmail, not candy. And I don't have any kind of drugs like people have put LST on sugar cubes. They have put needles inside of apples, razor blades inside of other types of fruit or candy, and actual cyanide, ground glass, or poison. And they warn you all over the country, if you have children, they're going to go out and pretend to be a ghoul or a goblin or wearing a Nixon mask, that's popular these days, and say, trick or treat, let the parents carefully inspect every one of those little candy bars because your little precious girl or boy could die in paroxysms of agony by eating this garbage, which isn't good for them anyway, that they go out and force the neighbors to give them. So I would always get apples, because apples, uh, this I think, are healthy, and we checked them, made sure there were no worms. I've asked people this before you think about it, would you rather find a half of a worm in your apple or a whole worm in your apple? A lot of people said, oh, a half a worm, I don't want to find the whole thing. Not me, I'd rather find a whole worm every time. So we look at the apple, we make sure there are no worm holes in it, and the little kids came, well, one night, a whole group of them were there, and they were dressed like everything from ghouls and goblins to Nixon, as I said. I said, all right, you see these apples. I'm going to give every one of you an apple. First one of you can tell me, what is the meaning of Halloween? And they giggled and nudged each other and looked around these weird costumes, you know, and I uh, couldn't see their faces. But one little fellow in the back finally spoke up, and he said, I know, it's the day when Columbus discovered America. 
And I remember telling him a little bit about it, that, well, that's close, but no, that's not it. And I went ahead and gave him an apple anyway. That's kind of ludicrous, isn't it? Here are people out and about, risking their lives, celebrating a national religious holiday, and they don't know why. They don't know its origin. They don't know anything about it. It isn't taught in the schools. It isn't even taught in the churches. The preachers of the Sunday-keeping churches do not preach a sermon on the mythological pagan origins of Halloween. It's just taken for granted. But the church itself, and oftentimes in church basements, is the place where you have the apple-ducking, apple-bobbing parties. I remember I went to one and cut my lip trying to pin the apple against the wash tub full of water. Christmas, what does that evoke in your mind? My wife can remember when her family, family of eight children, and her parents, when she was a little girl, enjoyed Christmas up here in Gladewater, Texas. The whole family gathered around the tree. The feelings of warmth, of nostalgia, of excitement, of each child giving the other child or all the other children a small gift. They were not that wealthy a family, but they were able to eat and have enough to give gifts on Christmas time. The aunts and the uncles, the people who came to visit, the colorful cards on the mantle, the expressions of love and joy at that time of the year. It's the only celebration of the year where it has all of its own special music. And some of the most beautiful music that has ever been written is what you hear over and over again at Christmas time. And there's nothing wrong with some of that music. Like, oh, come all ye faithful and let us adore him, etc. It ought to be sung all year long. It certainly could be sung around September, in the middle of September, when Christ was really born. But there again, the real mythological origins of Christmas are not taught in the pulpits of the church, and they are not taught generally to people who just grow up thinking about trees, bulbs, orbs, lights, snow, Santa, reindeers, and Rudolph with his red nose, eggnogs, roast goose, a turkey dinner. It's a beautiful experience. It acknowledges winter, sleigh bells ring, jing, 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 and you see the, the big uh, bush Budweiser ad, you know, the huge draft horses going through the snow, and it's such a gorgeous, nostalgic picture of these huge, big, powerful horses dragging the wagon on the sleigh. And you think of people bundled up back east, my mother telling me about the date she had when she was a little girl behind horses in a sleigh in Iowa at Christmas time with her boyfriend whose name was Webb, and her little girlish remembrances of Christmas time. I remember gathering around the piano with a friend of mine down in San Diego, and he went to a family's home. She was a Catholic girl that he married. They were really celebrating Christmas in a big way. And I was there with my eggnog standing around the piano with that whole family and singing sleigh bells and all these songs, and it was just wonderful. And even to me, when I didn't keep Christmas, Christmas evokes very warm, pleasant memories. It doesn't make me shudder. Uh, it is not threatening to me. But what do we teach our little children at Christmas time? Well, the wise men brought gifts to give to Jesus. So we should exchange gifts among ourselves. Now, the logic of that escapes most people because there really is no logic in it. They gave their gifts to Jesus Christ, but we give our gifts to each other. As Christmas comes on, we're going to be treated once again by the media, print and electronic, to all of the problems of America's homeless, to the winter and the street people, 
to all of the church groups and other neighborhood groups who are going to get together to try to give a Christmas dinner to the people who are street people in Dallas-Fort Worth, and Chicago, and New York City, who have no home to America's homeless. Then we will also be treated to a little bit of an insight into how Christmas is such a trial, such a torment, to a lot of people who are the very poor, who have no money, who have recollections of warm Christmases when they were children, but who cannot buy a single thing and do not expect to receive a single thing. And because they look at the contrast of all of the advertising at the shops filled with glitter and glamour and Toys R Us in Tyler is working frantically with one of the hugest stores you've ever seen to be open in time for the Christmas shopping season. It's going to be a huge store just laden with thousands and thousands of toys. But there will be millions of little children in America who think of all the games and the little trucks and the little red wagons and the tricycles. And it will be sitting there, I'm not going to get anything for Christmas. And it's a broken-hearted time of the year for them. It's a terrible time of the year. It's a time of great opposites, of great contrast, of a great cornucopia, an outpouring of wealth and glitter and presents and toys and wonderful things to eat and beautiful music and warm homes with the snow outside and the candle glow inside and the idea of a family gathered around the piano or around the roast turkey. And then the homeless who can expect to shuffle down to the Sunshine Mission and go in and be given a bowl of soup and shuffle right back out in the cold from whence they came. What does it teach us, Christmas, with a little tree, with the various accoutrements of Christmas like Santa and the reindeer? Well, myth and mythology. What I want to talk to you about then is the seasons, seasonal progression, and seasonal festivals. There are revealed in Leviticus 23 seven seasonal festivals that Almighty God revealed to ancient Israel. Let me propose the following suggestion. Aside from any argument, pro or con, Old Testament, New Testament, Jew, Gentile, Levitical priesthood, priesthood of Jesus Christ. All arguments aside about whether there is any obligation to keep them or not to keep them, let us go through briefly a little bit of the meaning of God's annual holy days in contrast to the meaning of the church festivals and the religious holidays of this world in the mind, in the eye of a child. Let me relate a little story that happened that I heard about from the pulpit out in Kings Beach, where our uh, minister out there, who was the festival elder at Kings Beach, told the story of his little granddaughter, who went down, as we always do as children, with our slip to go to the vice principal to be told to tell, I need this time off because it's a holy day of our church. Well, her teacher decided that since she was going to be missing for those days, she ought to tell the rest of the class why. So he gave her an assignment to write out and then to get up before the entire class on the last day she was going to be in school before she went with her parents to Kings Beach to keep the feast, and to explain to that fifth grade class why she was going to something called the Feast of Tabernacles. And the little 11-year-old stood there 
and told about how God called Israel and told them to make little booths out of palm fronds and branches and trees like a little tent and went through the whole story of how they were to sojourn in those booths and what it meant that we are living in a temporary tabernacle and that when we move into our permanent home that God is going to give us, it is going to be the kingdom of God and gave the whole picture of the meaning of the feast. And those little kids were hanging on every word. Wow, you mean you get to build your own little, little booth? You go out in the fields and build a little hut and you move into it and live in it? And the kids were excited. And at the end of her little dissertation, she got a round of applause. And the teacher was happy, and she was happy, and away she went to keep the feast. Now, I thought that was a tremendous example of this little girl who was able to glean from the sermon she has heard and from the teaching of her parents and her grandparents the meaning of God's feast. Let's look at the Passover now from a standpoint not whether or not we are required to observe it, no arguments involved, but merely from the rich tapestry the typology, the picture that we receive. Because Christmas is supposed to picture something. The birthday of Christ, right? And it, it is accompanied by all these beautiful things that I've tried to describe to you that evokes a feeling of nostalgia and beautiful music and everything. What does the Passover depict? There are millions of Christians, professing Christians, who go to church every Sunday who would probably stop at probably the very first analogy, and that is that the Lamb was symbolic of Christ, and that the shed blood of the Lamb was symbolic of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Now, let me ask you a question. What's wrong with that? I know that we don't need to slaughter any lambs today, and I'm thankful to God for that. I don't want to go about the business as a minister of having roast lamb after I have to go to the work of pretending to be the slaughterhouse and the butcher. That's not a pleasant job. I'm glad I don't have to do that. But have you ever had a lamb? My little neighborhood friend, Delmer, had a lamb. And I'd go down and pick up that little lamb, little bitty thing, when I'd walk up, pick it up, and give it a bottle. And that lamb was eating, was eating, you know, out of a baby bottle. And we fed that little thing and watched it grow. Is there anything more helpless, anything cuter, its little face and its little voice, and little bitty old hooves, than a precious little newborn baby lamb, white and pure? Now, you look at what God told the Israelites that they were to separate a perfect little lamb, the absolute flawless, unblemished little lamb on the tenth day, and they were to keep it, and then they were to slay it, and that basin of blood that came from that animal's body was then to be taken in a basin with a brush of hyssop, which is a strong cleansing agent that can, could be used in cleaning clothes, and was to be painted on the doorposts and the lintels of their windows on the outside of their house. And the Hebrew family would tell the little children, now you stay indoors and you be quiet tonight because the death angel is abroad. Now, that's a pretty exciting story. But it's more than just a story. It's your life. You keep your nose inside the door or inside the window because outside, death stalks the street. Goblins? How about the death angel? Witches? How about the death angel? I mean, this was serious business the Israelites teaching their children about the meaning that God was going to pass over their house and go to the next house, an Egyptian house that was disobeying God and the firstborn was going to be slain if Egypt under Pharaoh did not repent of the fact they had a whole race of people in slavery. And God hates slavery. 
And God wanted those people out of slavery to become free. They were his chosen. He had a great commission and a calling for them to perform. And he was going to break the yoke of the people who held them captive in slavery. And so the first way to get them out of there was to see if they would obey God and look at the beautiful type of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, together with that, they were to eat unleavened bread. And we see the meaning of unleavened bread, but in the New Testament, we learn a lot of typology of the Passover and the days of unleavened bread together. We know that the wine of the New Testament depicts Christ's shed blood because he said so. We know the bread depicts his body that is broken for us because he said so. We know that the Pharaoh is a symbol of Satan the devil, that in one case Moses appears like a symbol or a type of God the Father on the mount delivering the law. In another case, in his relationship with Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood, or the very first one, the beginning of the Levitical priesthood, that Moses and Aaron together are typical or shadows of God the Father and Christ the Son. We know that Janus and Jambres, the two magicians who tried to duplicate God's miracles up to a certain point and could not anymore and had to tell Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, are typical of the beast and the false prophet. That Moses and Aaron, who went continually in before the Pharaoh and said, let my people go, are typical of the two witnesses. The Apostle Paul tells us that when the Israelites were fleeing out of the land of Goshen and got to an entrapment right between two narrow little, uh, a narrow valley between two ridges, and were backed up against the sea, and here came Pharaoh's army, that here is a rich type of sin that, quote, does so easily beset us, sent by Pharaoh, who is a type of Satan, to capture and to bring back the Israelites when they'd made up their mind to escape, but they had not yet escaped all the way out of Egypt. So here came sin to grab them and to drag them back. But God opened up the Red Sea, and Paul tells us the Red Sea is a symbol of baptism. And there's a whole church that controls many towns and cities around us here in East Texas that are called after that rite, baptizo. They're called Baptists because they are named after a person who went around baptizing John the Baptist. What's wrong with baptism? Nothing. It's a beautiful symbol. It's a symbol of death, burial, and resurrection. And it's a symbol of every rotten, filthy thing we've ever said or done or all that we have become being buried and left behind in a watery grave. A symbol of resurrection, of coming up to walk in newness of life. It is therefore a beautiful New Testament symbol. Yet here is an Old Testament thing, a great monumental event, the Exodus, maybe three million people going through the Red Sea that we see in 1 Corinthians 10th chapter is a picture of baptism. They were all baptized under Moses and in the sea. Forty years wandering in the wilderness, a symbol of trial, a life of trial, and they lived in what? A tabernacle or a booth, not for just seven days, but for all forty years. And they ate what? Manna. It was bread, but it was rained down from heaven. And Christ later said, I am the bread that came down from heaven, and except you eat of my flesh, you have no life in you, but whosoever eateth of my flesh shall have eternal life. Here again is beautiful Old Testament typology with rich New Testament Christ-centered meaning. My question is, why, since there is such a wealth of illustrative material from history, do not the Protestant and the Catholic churches out of their pulpits teach the meaning of the annual holy days? Why 
deliberately, almost with hostility, turn away from and ignore the meaning of God's annual holy days when there is such a rich historical picture that we can apply in New Testament times. When you think of it that way, it really does look like there's a little bit of bias there present somewhere, doesn't it? Like there's a little bit of prejudice, because we're willing to borrow from anybody's history. Polynesians, Druids, I mean, we, we'll, we'll pick Babylonians, Greeks, we'll borrow from the ancient Aztecs, we'll borrow from the Egyptians, we don't care where it comes from as long as it's pagan. But when it comes to the Jews, the history of the Jewish race, there's no way, even though all Christianity knows that it was Judeo-Christianity and Christ was a Jew and every one of those apostles was a Jew and the early ch uh, church was all Jewish and those first converts were all Jewish because of that bias that finally reared its ugly head and took, you know, the full stride by 325 A.D. to say Christians shall not be found Judaizing by observing the Passover on the 14th and the rejection from all of that time since, century after century of the Catholic and the so-called protesting daughters that came out of the Catholic Church, the utter rejection of all that is Jewish in the Bible has led them to turn their back on this beautiful typology of God's annual holy days. The days of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. The picture of imbibing Christ, of drinking in Christ, of eating Christ. That man shall not live by bread alone. That bread is the very symbol of life. And the grain stalk is the symbol of life in many nations. That bread anciently was literally worshipped. It was a part of the ceremony in the tabernacle. There was always the loaf of showbread. It's called the staff of life. Yet Christ said, man shall not live by bread, and the word bread can mean any kind of edible food, as we can prove in the Bible. Breaking bread merely meant eating a meal. It is that way in many different societies. And so Christ is typified as the bread that is the life-giving staff of life, but this time eternal life, which came down from heaven. And the picture of eating unleavened bread is never something that is delightful or attractive to people. I had someone tell me recently that I believe it was a friend of someone visiting, and it's a member of the church, but the other person was a non-member of the church, and they came in during the Days of Unleavened Bread. They saw a family with matzos, and they said, Oh, I can't stand this because it's all Jewish. You people are a bunch of Jews. You're just Jewish through and through because it was matzos, and matzos has Hebrew characters on it, and it's produced by Jews for Jews. And so all they could see is that unleavened bread is Jewish. Was unleavened bread given to the Jews? Why, no. There were 13 tribes. Joseph had two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. So the 13 tribes in all, of which Judah was only one. So unleavened bread was given to all of Israel. And what does unleavened bread depict? The purity the humility of Jesus Christ, his body, his life, that Jesus Christ is to come and to reside inside of us. Is that New Testament language? Is it all right to preach in a Baptist church or a Methodist church that we are to be like Christ? Could I go to a Methodist church and preach a subject from a scripture that says, your life is hid with Christ in God? And I could work a sermon all around being hidden and wanting to hide out and how we are as children playing hide-and-go-seek. And when war comes, we want to hide. And people who have dwelt in caves, 
people who want to escape. I can come up with all kinds of analogies. And your life is hid with Christ in God. And it would be a lovely New Testament Methodist sermon of being hidden by having Jesus Christ take up residence inside of your life and your body. And yet that is what the Old Testament days of unleavened bread pictured. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days. Now, that was a beautiful ceremony. I've had many a garden in my period of time, although my back got a little cantankerous here in my middle age, and I don't have a garden anymore because that bending over uh, doesn't suit me the way it used to. I remember taking pictures of my produce in California. I went out there one time and I'd gathered about eight or nine different kinds of vegetables and I had them all out there, just gorgeous carrots and radishes and beets and onions and tomatoes and everything. And for some years my wife and I would eat every ingredient in our salad, every vegetable on our plate, and even the meat I had shot and was elk or deer or antelope. And everything on that plate was either grown in my backyard or came out of the mountains in Colorado. And it was just a wonderful feeling. Now, if you're a farmer, some of you are, maybe most of you are not. You go to buy your milk in a, in a, a paper carton, you don't really think of how nice it is when you can wean the heifer and the cows come in fresh, and it's wonderful you've got a milker again now. But when you're a farmer, you pay attention to that. And when you're a farmer and you see the rain coming down, you've got maybe 40 acres out there, and every rain is worth $1,000 to you on your grass. When you're a farmer and you go out there and you look at those fields, you begin to look at the little shoots coming up, you see the little leaves coming out, you see the little fruit beginning to appear on the peach tree. It is a feeling of richness, of new wealth, of rejoicing, of things springing forth in the spring, which is where we get that word, where everything is renewed in the springtime of the year. And if you're saying it's been a good winter, a mild winter, we've had gentle rains, we're going to have a great spring, you're happy because you're a farmer. Not only are you going to make money, you're going to feed your family. So here was a gorgeous ceremony. The Israelites would gather around. They would watch the high priest of a little bit of pomp and ceremony accompanying this. And they would go out into the barley field. They would watch very anxiously until the barley had come to full ear. And during the weekly Sabbath, in the middle of the Days of Unleavened Bread, the high priest would go out there after a prayer and would take a sickle and would cut a swath and would reach down and gather it up and would hold a whole arm load and with a prayer would wave it in offering to God. Do you know what it pictured? The first fruits is the first or the spring harvest, the barley harvest, for which they gave God thanks. It was a harvest festival. What are the accoutrements of Halloween? Cornstalks, pumpkins, squashes, nuts, the huge big blood red moon late Indian summer, the fall, the leaves turning, the idea that the great fall harvest has been gathered in and now we're waiting for a long winter when nature holds its breath. Isn't it interesting that after the last great day in the Feast of Tabernacles, we look forward to winter and through the long winter when the trees stand naked and the grass is dormant and the birds have mostly gone south to Central America and don't thrill us in their morning songs anymore, that everything just sort of is put on hold. It gets dark at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, we can look forward to a lot of wet, rainy, sometimes ice storms, sleet, snow, cold, dismal weather. But oh, in those days when finally the rains begin to come back in late February, early March, as it says, March comes in like a lion, 
and we begin to see the first little crocus, the first daffodils, the first tulips spring out of the ground. The feeling you get when it's springtime and winter is gone is just unbelievable. Do you react to the seasons? I think you do. I think all of us do. Nature does. All mankind does. Your spirits do. Your mental attitude, your approach to life reacts to the seasonal progression that God has built into nature. God portrayed his annual holy days, which portrays his plan, which lays out before people why we are here, why we are male and female, boy and girl, why we live this life, what this life is all about, what happens when we die, where we go when we die, what happens next, is there a life after death? Now the world is not very advanced, they're not just that much more sophisticated than God, are they? Because when you get right down to it, most of the holidays of the world are seasonal in nature. But they celebrate the middle of a dead winter in the case of Christmas, and they have the date wrong. Or they celebrate the fall harvest with a lot of witchcraft, black cats and goblins and so on, in the case of Halloween. So here's God's picture seasonally progressing through the springtime, and now we come to the first of the first fruits and the priest waving the wave sheaf, which is that grain already separated from the earth, here's the harvest out there in the fields. That's to be gathered in in a moment. But already cut loose from its roots in the arms of the priest, therefore depicting the risen Christ, already severed from the earth, rising to meet the Father in the air, the first held protectively in the arms of the high priest, being waved in acceptance before God the Father was a sheaf of grain. How many Baptists, how many Methodists, how many Catholics have ever been taught that the first, longest, fullest, ripest, most beautiful armload of barley in a spring of a beautiful barley harvest pictures the resurrected Jesus Christ of the New Testament? How many have been taught that? How many are taught that? Why is that ignored? Why is not that a beautiful type to look at? Why isn't it something to borrow? If we're going to borrow from Babylon, from Greece, and from Rome, what is wrong with borrowing from the Bible? What's wrong with borrowing from the race from which Jesus came? Is there something inherently ugly, rotten, and filthy about borrowing from Jewish tradition, if that's what the New Testament era, period of time, mainstream Protestant theology basically thinks? And it is what they think, because they ignore it. They do not pay a bit of attention to it. We progress then to the Festival of Trumpets. It could be called also the Festival of Communication, but notice that it says in verse 22, of Leviticus 23, when you reap the harvest of your land, now we come to the fall, and the fields now are ripe with the second harvest that was possible in that temperate climate and is possible in many parts of the United States, especially the Southwest, where they can have two harvests. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not make clean riddance of the corners of your field when you reap. Some farmer would say, now why not? I'm going to go to the last little corner. That's my land. That's my grain. I planted that, and I'm going to harvest that. God said, No, neither shall you gather any gleaning of your harvest. You shall leave them unto the poor. That was a beautiful plan, because people who were walking along in the fields could always find a corner of the field where there would be some fruit, 
maybe one tree, there would be a lot of grain. Maybe they had gone along and a lot of the grain had fallen on the ground, as you can see when you go out into West Texas and get into a milo field if you're going out looking for peasants. And you'd be crunching a lot of it underfoot because the harvest equipment doesn't get it all. But that isn't why they leave it. It's just because some of the equipment is not quite as effective as they might wish it were. So he said, you shall leave it to the poor and unto the stranger. I am the eternal, your God, and he is the creator God who gives us that rich harvest. In the fall of the year, God links together four holy days. Trumpets, atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the last great day. The Feast of Trumpets, we know, finally celebrates the eventual great final trump, but also implies the trumpets which are to be sounded all during the time leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ, and in shadowy type even implies the preaching of the gospel because it was Israel's communication method. But certainly it implies the last great trump that we read of in 1 Corinthians 15, 50-52, a memorial of blowing of trumpets. Why is not that rich language borrowed by New Testament churches, so-called New Testament churches, about the ram's horn, the shofar, officer's call, the call for the congregation to come and meet before Moses and Aaron at the tabernacle, the call to march, Reuben shall march, the fact that everything was done systematically and in order? Why wouldn't you want, if you were a Protestant minister, a Methodist, a Baptist, or Episcopalian, to look up every word out of an exhaustive concordance where the word trump or trumpets is used in the Bible, and skillfully put together a sermon based upon everywhere you can read about trumpets. But that's never done, is it? And some of you went to a Protestant church for 40 years, and you never heard it done, did you? Not one time did anybody preach to you the rich meaning of the Feast of Trumpets and show how it points to the second coming of Jesus Christ. You know, when I was a child, I was embarrassed about the Feast of Tabernacles. I'm not embarrassed about the most wondrous feast of the year anymore. When I was a child and I went down the hallway to go to the vice principal's audience, uh, office with my little note from my mother, please excuse Teddy, uh, we got to be gone for several days. It's a holy day of our church because I wasn't a Baptist and I wanted to be so bad, or a Methodist, or better yet, a First Christian Church or Church of Christ Scientist or a Lutheran. Delmer was a Lutheran. Some of my friends were. They went to churches that had some respect. I mean, they didn't keep God's Sabbath day. They kept the day of the sun. And they had respect. And they were upstanding. And they had status in the community. And my father didn't. And I didn't. And I was embarrassed. Not anymore. I think it is fantastic that one of our minister's granddaughters stood up and lectured her class on the beautiful meaning of the Feast of Tabernacles. And the entire class erupted in applause. And her teacher was very pleased and gave her a very good grade. I believe she got an A, if that's the way he was going to grade. I don't know. Uh, my wife is cringing back there. Maybe she didn't get an A. She doesn't know. But I know that he did not downgrade her because of the applause. Let's just say that he had to be happy with the result. All right, looking ahead then to the next festival. Many of us take the Day of Atonement as a very somber time. Yes, because we are fasting, and yet when you look again at the rich meaning of the live goat with all of the sins of Israel confessed over its head, taken by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness and let go. What a fascinating story to tell children. Now, Halloween supposes that there may be trolls under bridges, witches riding broomsticks, goblins, and strange things about at night. 
while the Day of Atonement tells you factually there is a devil and there are millions of demons and that every one of us have had a partner in sin and that Almighty God lays blame where blame is due, guilt where guilt is due, that he is the righteous judge. Why, with all of this absolutely fabulous typology, if you were telling a class of fifth graders about the meaning of the day of at-one-ment, when all the world is going to be made at one with God, and when the devil, who is called in the Bible a roaring lion walking about whom he, seeking whom he may devour, and given the scriptures about resist the devil, and all you need to do is to have the protection of Christ and his angels, and how a woman should be a helpmeet to her husband and a partner with him in their marriage because, quote, of the angels, end quote, and to be the kind of a woman that God would approve as he shows Sarah calling Abraham Lord, whose daughters you are if you do well, that is a part of our marriage ceremony, and the beauty of an angel watching over a little child. Now, why would an angel need to be around you? Well, because there is a devil. And you teach children he really is somewhere. We don't know right now if he's in Mississippi or Alabama or Oregon or over in the Vatican or in Tokyo or hovering around in a Senate chamber somewhere. We don't know where he might be, but we want to hope and pray when we go to bed tonight. He's nowhere near our house, right? So we want to pray to God to put his angels, keep Satan the devil away from us, and to have our protection and our angelic guards and protection around us at all times. What's wrong with teaching people the truth? about the fact there is a devil, he is dangerous, he is a partner in the sin and the crime of every human being who commits terrible crimes. He is the only way you can understand people like Saddam Hussein and Adolf Hitler. The only way you can understand serial killers, or even people who would murder a poor little defenseless pussycat, Satan the devil, that perverted fallen archangel, is the only way you can understand the heinousness of crime and sin. What a great day it will be when God grabs him, handcuffs him, locks him up, chains him spiritually with a powerful angel to cast him into a black, inky, dark, Stygian hole from which he cannot escape, can't mutter a word, can't hear a sound, and be absolutely in isolated, solitary confinement for 1,000 years. Is that New Testament? No, it's way beyond the New Testament. It's way out into the millennium, isn't it? Yet it is typified by an Old Testament beautiful ceremony. It shows us our mortality. It shows us our dependence upon air, water, and food. It shows how quickly, if we cut off the support of our daily sustenance, we can faint, become sick, headachy, and if we continue to process for very many more days, we're going to die. It shows us our utter dependency upon the material goods that come out of the ground, that we are earthy and of this earth, and it portrays putting Satan the devil away for 1,000 years and having a millennial period of the government of God of the most wonderful, beautiful picture in Isaiah the 11th chapter of little children being able to jump up on the huge big lion and grab it by the mane and take a ride of little children playing out in the field, and a rattlesnake will come by and you can reach out and pet it because it won't be dangerous anymore, of even the nature of animals being changed. Why would such a thing of such beauty not be preached? Who set the seasons in motion? I ask if the seasons affect us. 
Our hummingbirds are gone. I don't know when they left. I think they left while we were away at the feast. And they didn't leave because they got the last of our nectar out of our feeder. They left because of the length of the days and some genetic trigger. And I began to notice they were getting a little fatter toward the end. Well, I had read and I would told you and passed on to people that the little ruby throats have a genetic trigger that at a certain time, perhaps in late August or early September, they begin to store body fat, where before they're burning it up every single day. They're burning their entire body weight. Well, they begin to store it because they're going to have to fly nonstop, a lot of them clear across the Gulf of Mexico, and take long flights all the way down to Central America. Now, right now, arriving along the way in various states down probably in Tamaulipas and beyond there, all sorts of little ruby throats, thousands of them. We had nine around that one feeder in my uh, backyard one day, all of them, and they used to fight a lot, and all of a sudden they began to cooperate. There'd be three of them eating at the same time, delightful little creatures, you know, about that big and just wondrous to look at. We're really going to look forward to seeing them come back. The swallows are all gone. All of our barn swallows are gone. The scissor tails are going. All of the songbirds are leaving. The only birds that are around anymore are the ones that stay here all year, like mockingbirds and some of the blackbirds that are migrating through. They'll keep moving south. And in the middle of the winter, we're going to put up a seed feeder to keep some of our birds that are indigenous around here, native, alive during the winter. But the rest of them are gone. When you see the first ones coming back next spring, it's going to be a delightful thing. When I see the cedar waxwings coming through here on their way south, because they migrate on up north, I always look for them in the fall, because they'll come and eat the red berries on some of our bushes. And I'll get out my bird book and look at them because they're a gorgeous little bird. They're due here now probably in about another two or three weeks, and they'll be coming through the first part of December, late November. And you'll see clouds of birds flying very close together. To get a chance to look at them if they're flying real tight little groups and they land in any kind of a green holly tree with holly berries on it, those are cedar waxwings. And I, I like to watch for them because I'm very aware of seasonal progression. Is that pagan? No, that's beautiful. That's wonderful. It has to do with the produce and the harvest and the food that we eat. It has to do with our moods and the way we feel. Who set all of that in motion? Now, the New Testament meaning, of course, of the Feast of the First Fruits, we know is Pentecost, of the first birthday of the New Testament church, of Jesus Christ. And I've mentioned the meaning of the other ones. We've mentioned tabernacles briefly, that these bodies of ours are tents or temporary dwelling places that eventually we are to enter into the kingdom of God in a spiritual body. There is a physical body, the Bible says, and I quote, and there is a spiritual body, quote, in quote. That's what Paul said. And that God is going to give us a permanent home. Christ said, in my Father's house are many mansions, domiciles, permanent dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. And he said, quote, I go to prepare a place for you. If you tell a beloved friend or a member of your family, if you come to stay at my place, I'll have a place for you. You've got a spare bedroom. Maybe you've got a guest house. They're going to come expecting to have everything provided. And so Jesus Christ talks about in heaven preparing a place, and the Bible says you're going to be given a spiritual frame, a spiritual form, a spiritual body to replace your physical temporal body that is filled with aches and pain. Is that New Testament or Old Testament? I say that it's New Testament. It's the teaching of Christ, and Christ is central to every one of those pictures. The last great day that follows the Feast of Tabernacles teaches judgment, justice, 
but most of all, mercy. It teaches a chance for all. Yet here are churches who will have pastors who will stand in pulpits, and women and men, prophetesses, would-be and prophets alike, who will be bitter under the suggestion, or at the suggestion, will react very angrily toward the suggestion, that pagan Gentiles in China, Japan, Russia, Africa, anywhere in the world, who have never even heard the name of Jesus Christ, should ever have an opportunity for salvation. So far as they are concerned, this human lifetime, be it one day of a little child in India who dies one day out of the womb, or ten days of a little girl in China, or fifteen years of a little girl in the Philippines, if they do not somehow receive Christ or accept Christ in this life, they are going to burn forever in hellfire. What kind of a God is it these people imagine in their minds who would do that to a child? Not one child, billions of children, hundreds of millions of children, for hundreds of millions of years, in all eternity. I submit to you that is one of the most grotesque doctrines I have ever heard of in my entire life. And it is taught, it is believed, and it is bitterly clung to by many people who will say, I deny the doctrine of a second chance. Let me define for you what is a chance. I'm not sure that either, well, I won't go into personal examples, let me just say, I am not sure that there are many people in my personal acquaintance who have heard literally dozens of sermons have ever had a chance. Let me tell you why. Because my Bible tells me, in the words of my Savior, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, none can come to the Son except the Spirit of the Father draw him. And God tells us that God is granting repentance to certain people at certain times. That it requires a miracle from Almighty God to open a human mind. Now, I can talk about arguments that I've gotten into with certain people at certain times involving anything from religion to politics, and you literally may as well be speaking Greek. Your point can be so logical, you would think a child of 9, 10, 11 could understand it just like that. But a mature adult just cannot. They are blinded. They don't know what you're talking about. They take offense. They are utterly angry about it. They're exercised over it. You may as well just not even try to talk, not even try to suggest anything about God's truth. Their minds are not open. What is a chance? A chance is when you have had an opportunity to really understand and to say, Oh, now I see, and then reject it. But when you don't see, when you don't understand, if somebody comes running up to me and speaks to me rapidly in Russian and tries to tell me that something terrible is about to happen to me, have I been warned? Not if I didn't understand a single word. I just thought, who was that weirdo? What was a strange language he was speaking? But I don't get it. If somebody talks to me in my native tongue, English, but speaks in such convoluted, confusing terms that I don't understand the word they say, have I had an opportunity to understand it? Absolutely not. They haven't made it clear to me. God is going to give everybody a chance, an opportunity. And here is the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation that depicts a time when God is so merciful that he's going to give them a lot longer time to understand in a lot better 
habitat and environment surrounded by living, visible witnesses. Therefore, in one sense, a better chance, if you want to look at it that way, than you are having. Because you can't see God, you can only see what God does, and you can read His Word, and you can commune with Him where it's a one-way conversation, and the other end is always silent. But God's Word says of that time in the great latter day, great white throne judgment resurrection, your eye shall see your teachers, and no man will any more say, Know the Lord, for the knowledge of the eternal will be so absolutely full and abundant in this earth, it will be like the waters of the ocean cover the seabed. And they will see not just one member of the family of God, but millions. They will get to know them by name. If you and I could walk and talk with angels, if Michael were here and Gabriel were there, and dozens of other lesser angels under them, and about every three or four weeks, Jesus Christ would come in on the stage and take the lectern and talk to you for 40 minutes. Do you think that would be a sufficient witness? Do you think you would believe? Do you think you would get on your knees if Christ told you to and follow his orders and do what he said? I think I would, and I think you would. God reveals he is merciful. The last great day was a day that was typified by something Jesus did that most people have never understood. Why was it that on the last great day, Jesus stood out there in Solomon's court in the portion of the temple grounds reserved for who? Gentiles. Reserved for the Gentiles. They couldn't come into the inner part. So Jesus stood out there in the court of the Gentiles. Now, you've never heard this emphasized before, I don't believe. And what did he say? Remember his speech? On the last day, that is, the great day of the feast, Jesus said, Come unto me, didn't he? He said, All people can come unto me, and he that cometh unto me out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water, even as I received of my Father. He said it in the court of the Gentiles, to Gentiles as well as Jews, on the last great day which symbolizes God's offering of salvation to all of humanity. Blacks, the yellow races, Africans, Asians, everybody, dead and buried, living at that time, who has never had an opportunity. Now finally, putting it all together, if you were to look at all of the rich symbolism. There's a great deal that I went into in my sermon at the Feast of Tabernacles about our physical temporal bodies and the uh, analogies of living in a little booth and the fact that I left out that God sending Jesus Christ, that is God becoming a human in the flesh, born of a Virgin Mary, was, quote, God tabernacling with mankind for a short period of time and then going back to heaven to become once again very God at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. I left that particular analogy out, but that is also analogous to the Feast of Tabernacles because Jesus Christ was tabernacling in human flesh even as the new creature in Christ with the human spirit, which is a brand new spirit being dwelling inside of us is tabernacling in our bodies. Now everything that I've talked about focuses on Jesus Christ of Nazareth, his resurrection his soon return to this earth to rule it with a rod of iron, his great not only justice, but his mercy. 
to forgive sins in God's kingdom and in the great white throne judgment. So the final question, to repeat it once again, since in the gorgeous, beautiful, annual, seasonal progression of fall, winter, spring again, and then the summer of next year, and the coming fall after that, of two harvests every year, of the bounteous blessings of the harvest that God gives us, of the good foodstuffs we can go in the produce department down here at Brookshire's and look at the wonderful things that there are there to eat. And God portrays his whole plan and purpose of salvation in the seasonal progression of these annual holy days. Aside from any argument about whether you ought to go and appear before God on that date and observe it with God's people, Putting that aside for the moment, why shouldn't the historicity, why shouldn't the beautiful tapestry, the fabric, the analogy, the picture of these annual holy days be preached and taught to the children of our country, to the children of the churches, taught from the pulpits? Why should they so meanly and you would think almost viciously turn their back on the richness of the truth of God, of his masterful plan, as portrayed in his annual holy days every season, and instead embrace a jack-o'-lantern or a Christmas tree.